Hi everyone, Mike here. Today's episode is with the lovely Seamus McGarvey. We cover why aspiring cinematographers should pick up a film camera, how he went about short filmmaking, how to stand out as a cinematographer in a world full of people with iPhones, working with Laurence Olivier, how he tried to bring the art house look to the Avengers, growing up with Joe Wright, working with music scenes on The Greatest Showman, and more. He also has the best joke of a guest that I've heard so far, so listen out for his Northern Ireland quip, which made me laugh very hard. And that's enough of me, so here's the episode. I remember in early meetings for the Avengers with Joss Whedon, bringing up Tarkovsky in a meeting, and he kicked me under the table because the producers were just like, their jaws were dropping. They were like, oh my God, uh, is it going to look like that? Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookies. My name is Mike Battle, a screenwriter and production team member working for studios in London. Each episode, I bring you advice and stories from film and TV professionals to help educate and empower the next generation of filmmakers and crew. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Today's guest is master of colour and image cinematographer Seamus McGarvey. With beginnings in Northern Ireland, Seamus has traversed the world crafting the look of an incredible array of work from Rolling Stones documentaries and emotive dramas like Tom Ford's Nocturnal Animals to blockbuster fare like Avengers Assemble and The Greatest Showman. Along the way, he picked up two Oscar nominations for Joe Wright's Atonement and Anna Karenina, as well as a nod from our mutual friend Julie as one of the nicest guys in Hollywood. So it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you, Seamus. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Mike. Thank you very much for the invitation to join you for a wee conversation, fireside chat. Uh, nice to meet you. Now, I always like to ask my guests, first of all, Seamus, what did your parents do and how did that affect your career choices when you were younger? Well, my mum uh, was a, a PE teacher, physical education teacher, and my dad had two jobs, as is often the case. He was an insurance man for the Prudential Insurance Company. And he was also a, a, a journalist. He, he used to do reporting uh, for, I lived in a town called Armagh, which was the, is the ecclesiastical capital of Ireland with two cathedrals. So he had a sort of a rapport with the, the cardinal and the archbishop and was very interested in, in faith and the reporting of it. So he uh, was a, a kind of a, a liaison for the press between uh, the, the cardinal and the archbishop. So I grew up with in the midst of the troubles with with uh, my dad being uh, a, a reporter, effectively, and and the, the the house that I grew up in being a hub of activity of of visiting reporters and photographers coming into the town and and in the midst of the epicenter of the troubles and sending their their work back the, uh, during during riots or during uh, big events that were happening at the time in the in the early 70s so that was uh it was, it was an interesting upbringing in in a beautiful town of Armagh actually but it, it was there were different facets to to my upbringing do you think that's part of the reason that you picked up a stills camera because your dad was documenting with words and you decided to maybe document your local area with a camera maybe you know not so much in, in photojournalistic terms in fact, my uh, attachment to photography came as a, as a kind of uh, an escape from the here and now, because the, the town that I lived in was being depicted so vividly 
uh, on the news every night. You could see it when things were happening in the town. There was there was a war going on. So um, I used photography as a, as a sort of a, a poetic interlude rather than a, a reflection of the real. And as such, you know, I, I used techniques like infrared and I, I messed around in the dark room and anything I could do to sort of interject with with the, the here and now the world uh, and, and use the properties of photography to distort it. And, and that was actually something that where I really discovered the essence of what cinematography can be. It's the illusion of the depiction of the real when actually it's it's about uh, intervention and, and poetic uh, translation. And I, I love that. I love what a lens can do, how it can tell a different story, uh, you know, through each person's eyes who picks up a camera. Uh, when you pick up a camera, you see the world totally differently to anyone else because you're narrowing your scope effectively into things that interest you. And that's that's a really lovely thing, and particularly when that's enhanced by the the post, if you like, which was for me was just sort of swirling chemicals around in the dark room and printing, and and but I was able to affect the images either through burning and dodging and and the affectations of printing. So all those were became keystones for me in my cinematographic practice because it was about conjuring up ideas of what was in front of you. And, and rendering them in a different way and then also manipulating them afterwards. So this is obviously before DIs and digital intermediates and all that came in, but it was, it was the physical, the tangibility of, of the camera and, and the magical effect of change that it could affect that really excited me the first time an image revealed itself in, in, the, in the developing bath. Definitely. And I was looking up Almar, and funnily enough, it's not chock-a-block with famous Hollywood cinematographers. So when you were growing up around that age, did you feel somewhat different for your creative pursuits or were there a network of other creatives around you doing similar things? Well, there, there were a few, actually. In fact, there, there are a few uh, people, friends of mine, and we sort of call ourselves collectively the R-Mafia <laughs> because we're, <laughs> there, there are people who have migrated into film schoolmates of mine, uh, that, like Andy Hughes and, and Brian Kirk and, and others, Dara Carvel, who's a writer. I mean, there was creative fecundity there. There, there was in, in, the, in the midst of what you might, not immediately see as being a creative hotspot, but there certainly was the material for it. You know, there was the spur to think differently. And I remember when I was young at school, there were dissenters because art and poetry and and and, and all that were, were sort of frowned upon in the midst of the hard times that we were having. They were seen as dilettantish activities. And in fact, a few of my not really friends, but at school would call me and my friends uh, who were interested in that sort of thing, uh, the perfume gang. <laughs> <laughs> that's, how, that's how withering their gaze was an artistic pursuit. But um, we persisted and, uh, and, and made careers from it. I, I really feel very lucky to have ended up in a career with an art form that I love, you know, and which really inspires me and, and hopefully... I've always loved telling stories, and that's at the essence, at the at the center of of Irish kind of communication. I think 
is the storyteller and and cinematography and cinematographers have the responsibility to to that and uh, I, f- I feel very lucky to be accorded that responsibility for the occasional film that I get to make with others when you started in your early days of making films there was a lot of short film that you got into was that partly you and the perfume gang <laughs> yeah it was actually and it was just the joy we, we would just we wanted to, to make stuff there were no resources to do so but we just sort of like made it whether it was on super 8 or or whatever i mean video didn't even exist properly then but uh not in prosumer level so we just made stuff on Super 8 or or eventually when I got to London, I was able to do stuff on 16 mil. You know, I, I had a number of cohorts that I just used to hang around with and we would just make stuff. And in fact, a lot of my work, because I couldn't afford film, was stills because stills is where I started. But I then moved into sort of telling sequences with stills. So that it was a precursor of of my sort of narrative work. But one plus one equals three, that sequence of images that builds up into a story. So that that was an interesting way of, of thinking about how stories can be told through the juxtaposition of, of pictures and stills. I mean, I, I've always seen cinema and stills photography as being analogous. And I can get lost in an exhibition as much as I, I can in the cinema. In fact... I get lost more in books because in 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 books and photographic books, the the sequence of images is is kind of is there. You got the author's sequence already built in. I and mean, when you can flick between them, you can flick back and forth. But I love photo books for that reason, and I've been a collector of them all my career. Uh, and I I see them as as silently cinematographic um, because the, the links between pictures uh, create associations and other ideas, third, fourth, and fifth ideas beyond the image itself, which sometimes can be very totemic in itself. But in the sequences, have always inter- in, interested me. So, would you still recommend, I presume, young upcoming wannabe camera department cinematographers to pick up that stills camera? straight away, maybe almost as training wheels. Absolutely. I mean, looking through a lens is a language. It's learning a language of discernment, of uh, displacement of noise and focus. Of uh, It's also a focus of your angle of view, but also of your depth of field. And all those things that are inherently cinematographic um, about light and shade, it's about Especially now, I mean, I take most of my photographs on an iPhone because I love the shorthand notebookism of it. Uh, that I just see something that is so fleeting. It's like l'image à la savante. It's it's like Cartier-Bresson's notion of the decisive moment, which is mistranslated as decisive moment. It actually was the the, the fleeting, disappearing image à la savante, and uh, that's really exciting to me with an iPhone that you can just sort of pull it out like a gun almost and go and it's captured and then suddenly you know the image is gone the image that you saw the light that was flickering across a wall or through some trees is evanescent and and disappeared seconds after you're taking the photograph if you'd sat down with a tripod and tried to capture it it would have been a fugitive pointless exercise 
Um, so th there's something really lovely in the notepadding that the democracy of cameras gives us these these days that you can learn from the epic and the everyday around you, photographically speaking, and, and apply it to the bigger pictures. Um, I think it's really interesting to to note the fleeting and 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 see it as something that's inspiring. And I, I, I take that from everyday light. Even today, when there was there was a dramatic black cloud, it was grey all day, and then suddenly there was a burst of of front light, uh, and suddenly everything went slate grey. And I took a picture, and it was just I was like, I must remember how do I do this? But you, could, I mean, you can't really. But you could you could do it in, in maybe in CG terms, but it was just it was so inspiring to me that that I was able to just sort of take that picture. You mentioned the democratization there of everyone having a camera. Given that that is now the case, how would one wanting to become a cinematographer stand out amongst the arguable noise? Because for every brilliant cinematographer who now has a camera, there's also another million people who are snapping away. You know. Well, it, it is exactly that. I mean. I say noise, but I'm only mean noise because it's the noise of choice, not the noise of of uh, lack of inspiration. It's just that there's a, a paradigm of possibilities of choice that you can either accept and take on and make a smorgasbord of nonsense, or you can be discerning with your your eye. And as I was saying before, your eye is different to anybody else's. So my urging to any artist and cinematographer, aspiring or otherwise, and it, it's a reminder to myself, is to, you know, follow your own eyeball and and uh, and trust in your own artistic judgment, however strange it might seem. And you can't do anything other than that if it's to be truthful or to stand apart. I mean, mimicry is the great kind of counsellor of inspiration because, you know, people can make things look good. We can all make things look good photographically and it's, cinema can be very symphonic and bombastic at the drop of a hat. But what an audience wants to see and hear, if you're talking cinema as a whole, is, is somebody's personal reflection on something that we all kind of recognize, but haven't had the the conversation with the filmmaker about. And that conversation happens when the con when just as it we do in conversation, when somebody says something truthfully to you and you reflect upon it and say something back, that rapport is an exciting one. And that is the 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 conversation you have to have with the screen, with the honest depiction of something through an artist's eye and heart from what they've seen or what they felt when they've shot it. And it can it doesn't need to be spectacular or photographically arresting. It just needs honesty and truth. And those are the biggest moments I've had in the cinema when I feel something. I feel that filmmaker telling me something or reflecting me on something, not necessarily banging me over the head with it, but just feeling something with the use of character, script, light, photography, costume, sound, all the attributes of cinema and coalescing it into something that feels like a personal point of view. And when you when you have that, and it's done in a gentle way that, that allows for your um, interaction with the screen, then to me, those are the most enjoyable 
beautiful films to watch. One of the films that I was checking out of yours that was a beautiful movie was War Requiem. And to track back to Super 8 cameras, which we mentioned in the beginning, am I right that you were a little Super 8 camera assistant on that with Laurence Olivier? <laughs> I, was, I was very much a junior on that film. I've got to say that film, the second unit was shot by, the second unit on War Requiem was actually shot by Chris Hughes, who was also Derek's regular DP on The Garden and The Last of England. And uh, and I was his assistant. So we shot, it was effectively Lawrence Olivier's last scene in the movies because he and Tilda Swinton were in, he played a war veteran, you know, and she played a nurse. And we shot it on Super 8. And it was, I'll never forget it actually, because, you know, it, to, to work with such a, a, a legend, like, put on a clapperboard in, in front of him was, 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 I'll never forget that. And I worked with Tilda many times since. We often remember that, that day that we spent with him. I'm a big fan of turning points. And one of the turning points I think I've noticed in your career is that short film Skin, which was quite provocative subject matter about, um, you know, skinheads and the like. Do you think that's actually quite a good way to get noticed when you are making films as a younger person? Because I've also noticed that happened with Ari Aster's um, film, The Strange Thing About the Johnsons, which was about an incestual relationship, but really put him on the map. I mean, that was that was a bit of a turning point for me. I mean, I, I hadn't really worked that much with 35mm before, but I was recommended uh, for that film to Vincent O'Connell, the director, and with Ian Bremner acting in it. It, it was something that I, I wasn't trying to do something photographically that was bold for the sake of it but I think the subject matter did lend itself to that and one of my teachers at film school had been Jacek Petrisky and he'd uh, worked with Kieslowski and all those uh, Polish cinematographers who I absolutely adore like Slavomir Idziak and at the time I'd just seen a short film about killing that Sławek Slavomir Idziak shot which was Kislowski, part of the the Decalogue, the trilogy. And that, I think it was number six, was so arresting photographically because he'd used all these really bold filters and darkening filters and like stuck in on the edges, like grads. And and I, I heard that he'd smoked up optical flats with black candle smoke and then rubbed out little areas to, to see through. And so I just sort of slavishly copied him. Here was me saying earlier, mimicry is not the way forward. But but this was something that I was so impressed by. I thought, well, that would be that would be a great way for me uh, doing it uh, to to show just a world closing in. We were shooting in suburbia, and I just wanted everything black around, and so that it was all about the, the people, the faces, and the. The, the landscape around was kind of fading into uh, pitch black lithographic lithographic uh, nothingness. It sort of worked ish, and, and, and retrospectively, when you look back on it, it it it, it seems so ham fisted and crude. But there was something in that the innocence and the and the kind of the the photographic sloppiness of it that I really hanker after actually because now i'm supposedly better at my job <laughs> and uh you know i i don't think i'd be brave enough to do something on a bigger film 
as kind of uh, experimental as that. But I think those are the things, the very things that we all should be doing because it's such a young art form and it's it's great when you actually push the boat out. And I find myself guilty at times of of a kind of acquiescence or innate conservatism because I know that, you know, the stakes are higher and uh, burning stuff in to the to the negative into the sensor is kind of irrevocable but it's it's actually the bravery that uh, you know i that that set me off in this industry that you know i've maybe uh departed from somewhat are there any lessons that you took from those years of doing short films and little things like skin that you carry with you now on your massive blockbuster movies it's it's really about valuing every single project you work on whatever the budget and and treating the story with respect and 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 sort of artistic love uh artistic kind of uh thinking and and also what i love about those films is is that all those films that we made for no money were with filmmakers who all went on to to bigger things so you're working with the class of 85 or the class of 87 but they're the people making the big stuff now so it's i would say to everybody treat everybody as your fellow filmmakers on your way up you know don't ever have a go at a runner because they've messed something up or or try your best not to be a dickhead because we're all fellow filmmakers and you know the film sets can be very high octane places tempers can flare uh you have to keep your nerve. It's uh, it's really important to do that because when the atmosphere, it's a very febrile atmosphere in a film set and creativity depends upon a kind of an equilibrium, a balance. And when one person is off kilter or out of balance, whether because of their attitude or they think they're Jack the Lad or the Lass, then um, they're going to, make it more difficult for other people to contribute or make for a fearful place or a place full of blame. A film set should not be an area where people are blamed for things going wrong. You, we're a centipede on overtime. We're, a, we're a, 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 an organic uh, beasting. And it's, it's really important to remember the community that we're in and, and the fact that filmmaking, films are not made by one person. They're made in a socialist, collaborative way. You mentioned being on the up there and the class of 84, 85, etc. Um, someone who you definitely in the class of whatever year you guys were was Joe Wright. What did you guys talk about at the oil factory? Did you have big <laughs> dreams? How do you look back on it now? We did. I mean, we were just cineasts. We Joe had been at Royal College. Uh, he'd been at St. Martin's, I think. You know, I'd been at the Polytechnic Centre London. We were suddenly being paid a few hundred quid a day to do to make music videos and it was the most exciting time because we would throw 16 mil cameras in our shoulders and and go off and shoot from dawn to dusk doing music videos and it was it was the most exciting time of my life because imagery was was flagrant and it was all the music that i loved to listen to at the time anyway so we were working with the best bands that we all loved and we were also, there was a spirit of experimentation 
So I learned so much in that period. I learned about all the different film stocks. I learned about different processes. I learned about, well, basically the camera sort of melded into my shoulder. It was days of largely handheld photography. And I just became quite a good operator then. And I learned to forget about technique, actually, ultimately, which was the greatest thing. It was about looking spontaneously and finding the stuff. It was also about, because often, you know, the major part of the shoot would be about the run through of the song with an artist. So I really learned about portraiture and about how to light a face. But also during that time, in the days that we weren't shooting, we would all meet up and we'd talk about films. We'd go to the Scala and King's Cross. We'd, we'd be in Everyman. We'd be in all the cinemas saying, have you seen in, in the ICA? There's, I used to work at the ICA, so I used to get my mates in for free. I, should, I shouldn't say this in case <laughs> we find that out. But, but, you know, in the Cinematheque there, were, there was a whole collection of art house from across the world and the world cinema and the cinema itself. So we got to see films from China, you know, Zhang Jimao, uh, all those films that were coming in, Yellow Earth. Um, it, it was just the most exciting time for, for a young filmmaker or young filmmakers in London at that time, having access to the cinema from across the world, from Iran to Senegal to Mali to uh, Mexico and beyond and Iran. Uh, it was really got a shot in the arm from that, and it was it was a total slingshot towards a, like a career in cinematography because I got to appreciate different points of view, different characters of light, the history of cinema. Who is this guy Tarkovsky? Oh my fucking god! Have you seen Ivan's Childhood? Have you seen Mirror? No, and it, it was to see those films. It was like a transcendence, almost, you know, to see metaphysical cinema and and having just been a fan of of the more British realism, which actually, I shouldn't even use that word realism because I, I find Ken's film, Kez, Ken Loach's film, is, is one of the most, it's up there with Tarkovsky in terms of metaphysical cinema in an apparent realist dress. Yeah, it was just a time of, of great excitement about cinema. It's great hearing you talk about all of those amazing movies and little arty movies as well. And... From listening to you in interviews, you you sound like a real true artist in that sense, and also a bit of a scholar in the way you speak. I don't know if you know this uh, from listening to yourself. I wrote down some of the the, the, the phrases that you use, which are just fantastic. <laughs> Kaleidoscope of collaboration, quartz-like oscillation, flatulent peacock of a shot, oh, etc. <laughs> That's just my verbosity, Mike. I, I, you know, forgive me for that. I, I do like to uh, read, and my father was a great... Uh, talker and loved a word so that's sort of tribute to to him and when when you read that back it just sounds like absolute wank but um (laughs) (laughs) no i love it the reason i bring it up is you talk like that with such a love for artistry and the art house really i guess and i wonder how that correlates to when you work on something blockbuster like the avengers do you try to bring your love for art house into a movie like that well you know, I ought to. I ought to try to bring the art house into it. I remember in early meetings for the Avengers with Joss Sweden, bringing up Tarkovsky in a meeting, and he kicked me under the table because the producers were just like their jaws were dropping. They were like, "Oh my god, uh, is it going to look like that?" I think you've just got to be careful sometimes. But it, it, but it is terrifying because 
it's like a whole other medium when you work on a film at that scale. When you approach a set, as we were in Albuquerque in New Mexico, driving as I drove into work and you just pass all the juggernauts and you think, holy shit, that's that's the 50th juggernaut I just pulled past. And this is the set that I'm going to light. And it's dawn and, and the lights are already up for the day. And you're just like, oh, no, it's it's abs- utterly terrifying. But the, the wonderful thing is that the, the center of a film set, when you go past, through all those rings of hell, you, you eventually reach that, that inner sanctum. And that's where the movie's made. And it's exactly the same on We Need to Talk About Kevin as on Godzilla or Greatest Showman or any of those bigger films. That little, when the clapperboard goes on and it's silent, it's the same place, absolutely. And you just got to forget about what's over your shoulder behind all the kind of, it's either five people or it's 500. And you just got to forget about that and focus with what's in front of the of your camera. Uh, that's what I try to hold on to as my anchor, my touchstone. With each guest, there's normally one question I have to ask. And following on from that, the one I do have to ask is, what was it like the creation of the now, you know, famous 360 shock? Because I almost wonder as well, I'd love to hear your opinion, but then also were there lots of people involved in that? I feel like that's something everyone knew would become an iconic moment. That was actually, you know, the first shot that when I met Joss Whedon in a, in a coffee bar in Hollywood to see for as an interview, he was interviewing me for the film and he said, look, Here's one of the silly shots that, as Joss can say, that, that the, the, the previous people have come up with. He showed it me his computer and it was like that. And he said, so this, that's what we're making, right? So we did actually shoot that shot. And it, in fact, it, it inspired how we shot the film because when I looked at it, the first thing I said was, wow, it's all so vertical. And every, well, there weren't many Marvel films before that, but most big movies like that are, Two three five two three nine. I said we should shoot this movie in in a square format with more height. And eventually, I got absolutely vilified for it. But I, I believe we made the right decision because the Hulk was so tall and Black Widow was so small, and and the city was so vertical that it was a much more comfortable way of, of framing the city and having a tower above everybody rather than the, the letterbox. So I stand by that decision actually. Um, but uh, that was that was the sort of key moment. I think every film has a sort of the riff, and that was it. You know, it was the Avengers. They were all together and it had to be a 360. So it made us basically a, a, a 360 track on a um, green screen stage because we actually shot those inter- those exteriors were all shot as an interior. So in a railway station, a railway kind of sidings in, in Albuquerque. And, you know, I had to create ambient daylight. So that we had, I don't know how many, there must have been 20, 18 case bounced into a uh, white bounce uh, to, um, to create a sense of daylight. And then we used all these sort of weird mirrors and uh, to, to create the sh- shards of light that you get in New York, all kind of scattergunned across the, the set. So I was quite proud of that, although it was simple. But we were able to shoot, and then the second unit we were able to shoot at night, and we shot by day. So 
it it saved production bulked initially at, at doing a set like that, but it, it it worked really well. And then you know we we did plates for the background in New York. We did some shooting in in the real space and in, in Park Avenue, but uh, yeah, it was all done through the the magic of CGI. One of the things that I would love to ask you about is I noticed there's a theme in your career somewhat. I was desperately trying to find a theme. It's very hard with your career, Seamus. You do every movie, but one that I did find is music. What is your relationship to music? It seems to be a bit of a, a piece throughout your career, here and there, music videos, Greatest Showman, mm. documentary. That's really interesting because I, I actively vault away from repetition or, or trying to, you know, when I found something that really works photographically, I, I try not to return to it. But um, I've always loved music. I've loved contemporary music and pop. Uh, so, yeah, you're drawn to things that you love. And actually, recently, I've done a few musicals from Cyrano to Grace Showman. And I love what music does or the synthesis between camera and and the beat does because what it does is it, it coalesces everybody it sort of fuses the movement of an actor the movement of the camera and the whole crew kind of feeds off this umbrella of of rhythm and that lends things a, a symbiosis uh which which I, I think is really special so things when when i've shot to music the editor has always said, this cuts like butter because the, the actor's movement is with the... And, you know, often on Cyrano, we had the same um, uh, the same choreographer as we had uh, on Anna Karenina, uh, Larby Cherkwa, City Larby Cherkwa. And he, you know, would, would kind of choreograph even incidental gestures. So somebody lighting a cigarette in Anna Karenina or anything really, somebody walking through a door was was actively choreographed. And Joe often works to playback. I mean, he'll cut it for the dialogue, but he, you know, on Atonement, for instance, the typewriter was uh, pre-scored and, and we used it to playback. So all our movement, the camera track and little searches walking, it was all in sync it just made all the difference so on something like the greatest showman do you work very closely with the dance choreographers to to craft your shots because you're kind of working on the same thing to some extent yeah you're depending your shot on what they're doing you can't do a big tracking shot if you've got them flying in on a trapeze no exactly it's it's all i mean i get very involved in, in the rehearsals of, of their choreography and uh also, with as they're devising the previews, for instance, like Michael Gracie was very, very adroit at, at previews, and he worked at length for a couple of years beforehand, uh, devising sequences. That uh, and then at, well, I came in at not at the last minute, but I had like four months prep. But this was he had been working on this stuff for a long, long time, and I was able to inform to a degree, but. Essentially, a lot of the stuff was in his mind, but the choreography was still in evolution. And that's when you can really bring, because previs can be a little bit clunky. You can get the, the overall view of it all, but the swoop and the, and the languidity and the real slide happens live. And that's only with 
either a Steadicam operator reacting to stuff or a crane up or use an operator reacting to stuff. And and the way that the light interacts with, with the camera, all those things uh, are live. And that's what, what sort of unleashes the, the excitement of the dance or the song. Beautiful. Now, each episode, I like to wrap it up with a Red Carpet Rookies questionnaire, which is my own ode to In The Actors Studio. So um, just say, well, the first thing that comes into your head, are you ready, Seamus McGarvey? I am indeed, Mike Battle. I love it. Number one, what is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever been given? Well, the best advice I, I ever got was probably nothing to do with cinematography, but it was by a filmmaker. And they said to me, cinematography is... 10% cinematography and 90% bladder control. <laughs> and I've never heard truer words in my life because I'm constantly trying to escape the set for a pee, but I can't get away. And when I do escape for maybe a minute or two, there's always a PA outside the, the, the porta potty going, we found him, we found him, he's in the... <laughs> gotcha. So it's like, that, that's the best piece of advice. Don't, don't, yeah, don't, don't drink any coffee or water. Uh, because you, you haven't the time to pee it away. Love that. Never go to pee on set. Yeah. Number two, do you have a favourite film? I do indeed. There's no question. Top of my list is The Great A Matter of Life and Death by Paul and Pressburger, shot by my dear departed friend, Jack Cardiff. And uh, he was a wonderful mentor to me. And I'm inspired by him every day when I, I in a pickle. And I think, what would Jack have done? Uh, he was a man who uh, was a great artist and a, a gentleman and uh, a continuing inspiration to me. That's beautiful. Number three, what gives you a reason to get out of bed every day for an early call time, if any at all? Well, I suppose three children to support and uh, <laughs> their their mothers <laughs> is is my main inspiration for for at least the fiscal aspect of my work however i would be doing this even if i didn't get paid because i love it so much i just get such excitement from the creation and the camaraderie of filmmaking as much as as the you know the telling of the stories and helping to tell stories with a, a, a band of fellow travelers brilliant number four which job in the industry would you do if you weren't doing yours Oh, no question. Special effects. I th I love blowing things up, and it's not just because I come from Northern Ireland. Um, <laughs> I I I love. I absolutely love. And I know that that's not what special effects is about. It's much more sophisticated. But I like mechanical things. I like the ingenuity of solving problems physically on set because there's so much that can be done in CG. But I I really really. I'm astounded by special effects departments uh, and, and what they can do uh, in their workshops and to make things happen for real in front of your eyes. It's always a wonder to me. So that would that's the bit that I it almost makes me go, wow, every time I see it on set. Number five, if you could work with one person, living or dead, who would it be? It's a big one, I know. Uh, maybe Louis Buñuel. Um, whose films I, I really love and just the surrealist imagination and the mischief and the kind of the, the, the contrariness 
uh, is something that I, I, I really am drawn to in, in his films. Either him or, I mean, I would love to have worked with Michael Paul, of course. Uh, like just even to have been Jack's PA, Jack Carter's PA, or the most extraordinary thing, because just hearing Jack's stories from the sets, I just knew know that it was a festival of ideas and ingenuity and and excitement about making a film. I think actually um, in my last episode, Peace Lamont uh, said he used to work with Michael Powell and he used to turn up to set every day in his Bentley, flying goggles and hat. <laughs> I can imagine that. Yeah, proper old school. Uh, number six, what is a book that everyone should read? Oh, well, I feel like you have a lot. Yeah, th- there are so many, but for filmmaking, there's a, oh, there's a great one. Um, the Conversations, Michael Ondaatje, with, uh, it's about Walter Murch, the great editor. Uh, he did Apocalypse Now and all these, these films, but an editor who thinks holistically about the whole film, about sound, about about the, the, the dynamic, about the, the kind of depth that's it's the editor editing procedure is about so much more than the cut and the great writer Michael Ondaatje had a conversation with him or a series of conversations and it's one of the most illuminating reflections between two people in different art forms talking about what it takes to make a story great and greater through the, the literally the editing process and the refinement of of notions that are in your head and bringing them together in a way that an audience can feel. So there's that. There's also um, the photograph that changed my life, which my friend Zelda Chapel, who's a gallerist, has just brought out. So it's a shameless plug for her book, but it's she got together a series of photographers and artists and. Uh, they each write something about a photograph that meant something really profound to them. So that that would be my second uh, choice. Fantastic. And finally, if you won an Oscar, who would you thank? Oh, that's a, a dream. Uh, but um, if I ever won an Oscar, I'd, I'd thank my art school teacher for handing me a Super 8 camera back in the day when I was 14 and saying, go out there, shoot, shoot, shoot. And my mum, who, you know, basically funded my uh, darkroom and said, you know, son, it's not buying the horse, it's feeding it. And she was absolutely right because, you know, it was all very well buying a Zenith camera for 21 quid secondhand. But it was, it was the, the, the funding of, of that subsequently that allowed me to lay the foundations of learning about technique and about about uh, chemistry and the physics of photography before I until I had the chance to forget about it and and just look with my eyeballs heart and brain so those are the two that would be first on the list of course I'd thank the others too but that day I doubt will ever come but uh, thanks for the question because <laughs> I've just done my my ghostly speech to the, uh, an audience of one <laughs> Well, I feel very lucky to have heard it first. But on that note, we must bring our time to a close. Thank you so much to Seamus for joining us, a true artist and image-making legend. And I feel privileged to have met one of the founding members of the Perfume Gang. Until next time, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Red Carpet Rookies. To help us grow and be able to interview more amazing film and TV professionals, 
please do subscribe and drop us a rating on the Apple Podcast Store on your iPhone or online if you're an Android user. If you're interested in regular updates, the best thing you can do is join our mailing list at redcarpetrookies.com or alternatively, find us on Instagram at redcarpetrookies or on Twitter at rcrookiespod. I also tweet regularly about my own learnings in the business at Mike F. Battle on Twitter, so please do come and say hi. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time.